Do you remember your first fireworks show? I certainly do. I was holding uh, one of these, a little sparkler, uh, pretty much the entire time, and I would swap them out because here in a minute, this one's going to burn out just like mine burnt out. Nothing's going to catch on fire, by the way. Nobody panic. So I remember I was about seven or eight years old, and I knew... um, what a fireworks show was supposed to be like. I don't know if I had been to one before and I kind of knew what to expect. I don't know if I had seen them on TV. I don't know if my parents had told me about them, but I knew kind of in the back of my mind what was going to happen. And, and here's what I was expecting. I was expecting that they would shoot off some fireworks for, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 minutes And then at the end of those 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, there would be a time of quiet and just, you know, anticipation. And then what they would launch into at the end of the fireworks show was exactly the reason that everybody actually showed up to watch the fireworks show. And what's it called? The grand finale. It's at the end of the show when, when, they, when they do the, the best thing they got. They, they shoot off everything they've got and color and sounds and shapes, which is crazy. They can do shapes and, and they just turn it loose. And the whole time during the body of the show, during the actual show, you're expecting and anticipating and waiting for the grand finale to come. And I remember as I held my sparkler, I kept looking at my dad and I, and I said to him, you know, every time they would do something cool, every time they would shoot off a different color or a different shape or it was really loud, I'd look at my dad and I would say, dad, that was awesome. He'd go, yeah, I know. And I would say, dad, was that the grand finale? And he would say, no, son, you'll know when it's the grand finale. And I thought to myself, wow, how much cooler could it get than what I just saw with reds and blues and greens and oranges? And, 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 you know, at seven or eight years old, like loud is awesome. You know, as loud as it was, how, how much cooler could it possibly get? And then I would see something else and they would make squares or triangles or circles in the air. And, 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 and again, just fireworks going crazy. And I, I look at my dad and I say, dad, was that the grand finale? And my dad would say, no you'll know when it's the grand finale. I remember I was at my grandfather's country club at this fireworks show, seven or eight years old in my hometown, Hobbs, New Mexico. And I'm sitting by my parents and at the, at the end of the fireworks show, everything kind of gets quiet. Everything kind of goes still. And there's this moment of anticipation and expectation. And the crowd that's gathered for the fireworks show kind of takes a cue from the fireworks and everybody gets quiet. And everybody is still, and they're waiting for what they came to see, the grand finale. When we open up the gospel of Luke, this is the place that we find ourselves in God's big plan for salvation. See, see, in the Old Testament, God had been shooting off some different fireworks, He'd been shooting off the fireworks of, of, of his covenant with Moses or his covenant with Abraham or his covenant with David. He'd been shooting off uh, the, the, the law and the prophets. He'd been shooting off the, the fireworks of parting the Red Sea or showing up to the nation of Israel in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And you can almost see the nation of Israel going to God and going, Father, was that the grand finale? And God answers, say it with me. No, you'll know when it's the grand finale. And like a good fireworks show, the body of the show is over at the end of the Old Testament. And all of those fireworks that were so cool and so interesting that served to point our minds and hearts towards the grand finale, that we, that we thought, wow, it can't get any cooler than that. And God goes, oh, you will know when it's the grand finale and it will get much cooler than that. And at the end of the Old Testament, again, like a good fireworks show, God goes quiet for about 400 years. No law, no new covenants, no prophets, 
The nation of Israel continued to worship. The nation of Israel continued to go before him. And God's people continued to point to him and turn their eyes to him and worship him. And they did their best to walk with him. They weren't always great at it, but they did their best. And for 400 years, the anticipation starts to build. The expectation starts to build. The tense excitement starts to build as they look towards God's grand finale in his son, Jesus Christ. That's where we pick up our story in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible, open it up with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. The the scripture is up here on the screen. You can read along with us. The book of Luke is a biography of the life of Jesus. It talks about who Jesus is and what he did and his miracles and his ministry and all different kinds of stuff. And we'll be looking at some snapshots. The book of Luke kind of reads like an Instagram account or a photo album. So we'll be looking at some snapshots, some word pictures in the gospel of Luke. And so in this moment of tense expectation, in this moment of anticipation, waiting on God's grand finale, Luke writes his gospel and he begins this way. He writes this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." Let's make a couple notes here so we can get to know our author just a little bit. The first thing he says is, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that that have been accomplished among us. Basically what he's saying is, there's some written records out there. A lot of scholars think he's referring to the Gospel of Mark, which would have already been circulated by this time. He says, there's stories going around. uh, Verbal, oral, uh, passed down tradition, and and also written about Jesus. And, And in this time and place, you know what, it was pretty popular to disparage those other accounts, to say they were kind of, you know, horrible, they were kind of hogwash, they were kind of bad and lame, so I'm, I'm writing a better one here. But look what Luke does, verse 2, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He says those other accounts, specifically the gospel of Mark and that oral tradition, they've been successful. See the humility there? He said, isn't, isn't, that, isn't that great that those things, those things they, they were successful, those gospels, those, those accounts of the life of Jesus. But verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We're not sure who Luke is writing to directly. A lot of scholars say different things, but he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And it's interesting that he says, I followed all things closely, and I'm going to write an orderly account. It's interesting to me because Luke was a physician. He was a very, very educated man. He was a doctor and quite likely a very, very good doctor. You want to know how I know that? Because he was Paul's traveling companion. You ever read about the life of the Apostle Paul? You had to be a good doctor to keep that dude alive. I guarantee you that, all right? So likely he was a good physician. And because of the Greek that he writes in, because of the language that he writes in, he was a very, very good doctor. And he was a researcher. He he was a little bit of a scientist. He, He would compile all these details. And so he says, I followed those things closely. I know what happened. I confirmed all of that oral tradition. And the stuff that wasn't confirmed by eyewitnesses tossed that stuff out. But the stuff that was confirmed by eyewitnesses, Luke may very well have been an eyewitness to some of the things that Jesus did while he was alive. And he says, I've written an orderly account. And it's not necessarily a chronological account, but it's put together in such a way to convince us, to compel us. And what does he want to convince us of? Verse four, look up here on the screen, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. 
He says, I'm going to put together a, a, a gospel. I'm going to put together a biography of the life of Jesus. I'm going I'm to write an orderly account. I'm going to do extensive research. I'm going to confirm all the details. And he gets very, very detailed, by the way. One of the most detailed, probably the most detailed gospel in terms of geography and a few other things. And he says, I'm going to write it for you so that you may have certainty, so that you know what I'm telling you is true. It actually happened. And the first thing that Luke wants to tell us about is one of the fireworks that God set off before his grand finale. Because like a good fireworks show, you know, at, at the end of the body of that fireworks show, and, and, then, and then things get quiet, and there's that tense expectation, they don't just shoot off the grand finale altogether out of nowhere, do they? They, they, they shoot off a firework or two to kind of let you know it's time. I know you've been waiting for it. The expectation is built. The anticipation has built. Here's a, here's a, couple, here's a couple of fireworks I'm going to shoot off just to let you know it's coming. So let's look at this first firework that God shoots off to let us know that the grand finale of Jesus is right around the corner. Pick it up in verse 5. Luke writes this. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiyah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So what do we have happening here? We've got a priest named Zechariah, and we have his wife named Elizabeth, and they don't have a kid. Now, we read this now, and we're like, oh, it's a priest, and she's from Aaron, and that not that lovely, and they don't have a child. What a bummer. That's, that's difficult, okay? But, but Luke is really setting up for us an emotional situation. He wants our hearts to engage with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So I've kind of put my own notes in the scripture here so our hearts and emotions can engage with Zechariah and Elizabeth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread the verses that I just read. And up here on the screen, Anahara, who's serving us this morning by clicking through my slides, and I'm all over the place, is going to put your part up here in red. Okay? So I'm going to read, and then you're going to read. All right, you're going to read the red parts and we're going to engage our hearts with what Luke is trying to do as he sets this up here. It says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiyah and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. He was lucky because she was also from a priestly line. That would have been considered a blessing. And her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. It is wonderful, but they had no child. That's correct, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now our hearts are engaged, are they not? Now, now we see that this priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, also from a priestly line, are serving the Lord. They're walking blamelessly. They're upright. They're righteous. And they don't have a kid, which would not have been a sign of blessing in those days. And not only did they want a child and were unable to have a child, now they've gotten old and they're past the years of childbearing. Pick it up in verse 8. Now, while he, that Zachariah, was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Here's what's happening. Part of the worship in the Hebrew culture, part of the worship in the Old, in the Old Testament as God set up was burning incense. And it, and it just happened on a very, very rare occasion. And, and so, so listen close. There were more priests than there were opportunities to burn incense on behalf of the people. Did everybody catch that? More priests than there were opportunities to burn incense. So when Zechariah is chosen by lot to enter the holy place on behalf of, this, of, on behalf of the people of God, this would have been the pinnacle of his career. This would have been the pinnacle of his ministry. This would have even been the pinnacle of his life. 
even, even more important than his wedding day. And you know what? His wife Elizabeth would have said, yeah, 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 that's actually more important than the wedding day. Zechariah getting the opportunity to go before the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel. How many of you were with us this summer? We talked about a king and a kingdom, lessons from the life of David, okay? Do you remember talking about the tabernacle? And, and, and then when that got translated into the temple, in, in a physical temple, the, remember we talked about the, the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt, uh, the, the, the actual presence of God? Uh, Zechariah was not a high priest, so he was not able to enter into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. But as you enter the holy place, the last item of furniture before you cross that threshold into the most holy place, the last item of furniture before you walk through the curtain into the room where the Ark of the Covenant is held, guess what? It's the altar of incense. This was as far as Zechariah was able to go. This would have been a very, very special day for him. And it's about to get far more special because God hasn't spoken for 400 years. The expectation is building. The anticipation is building. They haven't seen a prophet. They haven't seen a message from God. And guess what happens? Verse 8, pick it up with me. I'm sorry, verse 11. And there appeared to him, that's Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Just so you get a picture here with me, if Zechariah is walking before the altar of incense here, it was on the, the angel's on the right side of the altar of incense. That means it's on Zechariah's left side, the Holy of Holies, uh, the drum kit. I know it's tough for a lot of you, but the, the drum kit would be the Holy of Holies. And, and the angel would be on Zechariah's left side. He appears on the right side of the altar of incense represented here by my chair. Now, there's a lot of commentators and scholars that would tell you, you know, the, the, the significance of the right side of the altar of incense is this, that, or the other thing. And they all kind of like, you know, go back and forth as to what the significance of that is. Here's my take. Here, here's my take on the, on the significance of where the angel is placed. This is, this is our author's personality. He's done his research. He knows the details and he includes them so that what? We may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. Pick it up in verse 13. God speaks. Oh, sorry. Pick it up in verse 12. Look at Zechariah's initial response when this angel shows up. And Zechariah was troubled, which is like the understatement of the year, right? It was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So if you were like hanging out at Bayview Glen one day and you're in the sanctuary or you're in the Reimer Chapel and you're just, I just want to be quiet before the Lord and pray and you're praying before the Lord and then you open your eyes and there's a heavenly being in front of you, would you not be troubled and afraid? Yeah, we understand Zachariah's response. That makes total sense. I'm glad it's him, not me. Okay? Verse 13, God begins to speak. After 400 years of silence, after no prophets and no law, no nothing, after just holding on to the promises of God, knowing that he was going to speak, knowing that he was going to redeem, knowing that he was going to send his grand finale, the angel begins to speak. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. I read that stuff and I always wonder if it helped, you know? Don't be scared. Okay, <laughs> sure. You're a heavenly being. I'll just stop being afraid. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and he and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many for the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let's unpack God's promise here to Zechariah. Here's what God promises Zechariah. It's up here on the screen, six things. He promises that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth will conceive. Even though they've been barren, even in their old age, they will conceive and the son will be named John. Here's what he'll do. He'll bring joy and gladness to Zechariah and many will rejoice at his birth. Did you catch that? Okay, number two, he will be great before the Lord. Number three, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number four, 
John will turn Israel's to, to God. He will turn Israel's focus to God. Number five, he will reconcile relationships. That's what it means when it says, we'll turn the hearts of the fathers to children. He'll reconcile relationships. And he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, he will prepare people for the coming of the Lord. Now, I want you to, I want you to notice here, this is interesting, is that John, really his primary role here is to prepare people for the Lord. That, that's his primary role. It's highlighted there on the screen, verse 6. Prepare people for the Lord. That's his primary role. And everything else is the way he's going to do that, and everything else is what God has done in the midst of that. So, number one, God brings joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. John's not born yet. And God's saying many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. Again, who determines that? Well, God does. This is God's promise. This is God's design. This is God's big fireworks show. He's going to be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in order to accomplish his primary purpose, which is to prepare people for the Lord, he will turn Israel's focus to God and he will reconcile relationships. But again, get this because it'll, it'll come into play here in a few minutes uh, towards the end of our sermon today. John's primary role here is to prepare people for the Lord. To prepare people for the Lord. Just like the fireworks that come before the grand finale is to say, hey, there's a grand finale coming. Turn your attention upward. Turn your attention skyward. Pay attention. The grand finale is coming. Now, Zechariah responds to this angel. Zechariah responds to the promise that God has delivered, check it, God has delivered through his servant Gabriel, through his angel, his messenger Gabriel. Zechariah responds, and look at Zechariah's response. It's, it's not good, by the way, spoiler alert, it's not good. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Well, it can only go downhill from here, right? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. First of all, Zechariah questions the authenticity of the promise of God. He questions whether or not God can fulfill his promise. Now, I want you to see something else that you wouldn't otherwise see unless you were looking at the original language in the Greek. And it's this, that those words, I, I, and my, are all emphatic. There's, all, there's emphasis on all of those words in the original language. So, so, so listen to the way that Zechariah responds to God's promise. And I'll read it for you again, but I'm going to put the emphasis there as it is in the original language. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Where is Zachariah's focus? It's on himself. Well, this is, this is about me. This is not, it's not about what God can do. It's not about his promise. It's not about what he's up to. It's not about his grand redemptive plan. This is about me. So much about me that I'm requiring that God prove himself to me. How shall I know this, for I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah's unbelief is a direct result of self-focus. If you're jotting notes down this morning, jot that down. Zechariah's unbelief, his lack of trust, his lack of faith in the promise of God, doesn't come from faithlessness. It, becomes, it comes from his lack of focus on God and his focus on himself. We're going to talk about where faith comes from in a minute, and so don't panic, but, but just get this. Zachariah's unbelief, his faithlessness is rooted firmly in self-focus. He's become what I like to call a belly button gazer, a navel gazer. I spend a lot of time looking inwards. I spend a lot of time looking at myself. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife, all about me, me, my, I, I, I. He's acting like a baby up in his my chair is what I like to call it. He's got his, his resolute self-focus, and because of it, he misses out on what God is about to do, or he almost misses out on what God is about to do. And I always think God is so funny 
Like the scripture is really funny. So, so listen to Gabriel's response in verse 19. Pick it up in verse 19. So, so listen to what Gabriel says. The eyes here, by the way, emphatic. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. In other words, this ain't your show, Slick. This is God's show. I was sent to bring you this good news. I was sent to declare that the grand finale is coming. God is going to use you, and there's nothing that you can do about it. This is not about you. Rick Warren wrote a book several years ago called uh, The Purpose Driven Life. First, <laughs> first sentence of the book. It's like, how, how do you sell like 38 bajillion copies? And the first sentence of the book is, it's not about you. <laughs> like, how do you do that? Because this has been God's plan from the very beginning. It's not about you, Zechariah. And your self-focus is misplaced. Bottom line truth number one this morning. If you're jotting notes down, jot this down. Self-focus usually means missing out on God at work. Self-focus usually means missing out on God at work. If I'm too busy staring at my belly button, I'm going to miss out on the grand finale. Why? Because the grand finale is out there, up there, not here. There's another way that we can say that this morning. It's it's this way. Uh, Experiencing God's promises requires your full attention. And God comes and he sends his angel to get Zachariah's attention, but Zachariah is too busy focusing on himself. So one of our key bottom line truths this morning is this, that self-focus usually means missing out on God at work, and I don't want to miss out on God at work. Experiencing his promises requires my full, uh, my full attention, and I want to experience his promises. The unfortunate part is that our entire culture is built around you, isn't it? How many of you have an iPhone? How about an iPad? An iMac? How about an old school like iPod, the rotary iPod, right? How many of you, don't be ashamed, raise your hands. How many born between 1946 and 1964? Raise your hand, 1946 and 1964. Okay, Um, you know that there's the millennials and the X generation, generation X and all that stuff. You know what your generation is called? The me generation, not kidding. (laughs) That's, that's, that's how sociologists refer to your generation. Now, look, I just want to be honest with you. I know that's not you, okay? I know that's someone else out there that has earned that name. You, you are the God generation. I get that. I get that. You are the others focused. You people in here, it's someone out there. I know it's not you. But our whole, our whole culture is built around me, isn't it? What about, what about young people these days? Young people, and, and they do the selfie. Have you heard of the selfie? It's like, I don't even take pictures of other people anymore. I just take pictures of myself and post them online. Like, I don't even need you. And, what, and, when, and then when I post them online, I post the selfie online. Like, you know, the, the post-workout selfie. You know that one, the post-workout selfie. The, uh, the uh, this is what I'm about to eat selfie. You know, this is like, you know, which, which top looks cuter on me selfie. I, you know, I get all that stuff. And then we go back online and, and what are we looking for? We're looking for likes. What are we looking for? We're looking for attention, focus, me, I. The, 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 the recent one, this just happened in the last couple of days, very much an I-focused generation, a me, 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 I, 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 what about me? It's Black Friday. You know, this is the day after American Thanksgiving when like everything goes on sale and you can get like a KitchenAid mixer for three bucks or something like that, right? So, so listen, this, this used to be in this, uh, this kind of came from the States. This day after American Thanksgiving is Black Friday and everybody goes out and they're like pushing each other and rioting and shooting each other for like, again, like, look, I'll give you the 30 bucks for the KitchenAid mixer. Like, don't like put the gun away, right? Like, I got this last Black Friday. I need to use it. Um, and so it comes, it comes from the States. And then, and then now, do you know that we're doing Black Friday here now in Canada? It's like not even a day after a holiday. It's, you know, it's not even Thanksgiving here. It's Thursday. Like what? 
you know, Thanksgiving already came in, in October. My wife called me the other day. She's like, I'm up in Aurora and it's crazy. Like it's a Black Friday and there's people everywhere and it's, it's just nuts. It's berserk up here. And I'm going, it's Aurora. Like, like when does Aurora go crazy? Why? Because it's all about me. It's all about the deals that I'm at. Look, if you got a good deal on Black Friday, God bless you. Whatever. Okay, so that's, that's fine. That's fine. What, what I'm saying is this, that, that this, this resolute focus on me and on self that's even displayed in Zechariah 2,000 years ago, it, it, it's got really bad implications. I'm a pastor. I have people come into my office all the time. Luke, I'm not experiencing the abundant life Jesus promised. In my job, in my marriage, in my internal life, self-care, I'm not experiencing that abundant life he promised in John 10.10. And, and, and then this is the conclusion. This is the fix. I need more faith. I need more prayer. I need more obedience. No, you need to focus on what you can do, less focus on what you can do, and more focus on God. Because faith, prayer, and obedience follow a Godward focus. Get that. So if, 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 if I'm focusing on me and the, and the things I can do, my prayer, my obedience, oh, me, 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 still me, 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 me. But, but if I turn my eyes towards God and I say, oh, God, I trust your promises. Oh, God, I believe in you. Oh, God, you are great and merciful and mighty and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What is that going to do inside of me? Well, it's going to make me more prayerful, isn't it? It's going to make me more obedient, isn't it? It's going to make me more faithful, isn't it? Bottom line truth number one this morning is that, is that Zechariah serves as an example for us to turn our focus away from self, away from me, away from what I get, away from God, prove it to me, and turn our focus to him and him alone who is great and majestic and seated on his throne and is going to do what he's going to do. He's got a grand finale planned for Zechariah and he's got one planned for you and me. So what's interesting when Zechariah responds with this I, 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 me, me, me thing, <laughs> God just goes, okay, that's fine. You're just gonna be quiet until John is born. <laughs> Not great. God's funny. Just funny. He just renders him mute. Gabriel just goes, all right, you're not going to be able to talk. Zechariah comes out. How awkward is this? You know, he comes out after offering incense, after worshiping before the Lord, and there's a crowd gathered. Remember, it told us there's a crowd gathered. And, and they're going, hey, how'd it go? And Zechariah's going. And I'm sure he's thinking to himself, I may have made a mistake in my response. And so for the next however many months, you know, nine, ten months, whatever it is, Zechariah is rendered mute. He's not able to speak. But he and Elizabeth conceive, even though they were barren, even in their old age, God fulfills his promise, doesn't he always? And when it's time for the boy to be born, they bring the child to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day, according to Old Testament law. And this is the time that he would have been named. And what did Gabriel say? Gabriel said, this boy should be named John. That's his, that's his name. He'll be called John. And so uh, the people who are gathered, and when he's circumcised, they ask Elizabeth, because she's the only one that could talk in this relationship, how many of you uh, women of God would say, you know what, that would be great if God would do that to my <laughs> spouse. Don't raise your hand on that one. That's, that's not good. So she's the only one that can talk in this relationship. So they look at her and they go, okay, what's the child's name? And she says, in true Canadian fashion, she may have been Canadian, very polite, very polite response. She says, his name shall be called John. So it's, 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 not, it's not particularly declarative. It's not particularly rigid. It's not particularly emphatic. She just says, he'll be called John. And she gets pushed back from the crowd. They're like, look, you, you had no one in your family named John. You got all these other names to pick from, Aaron, Zachariah, whatever, whatever, Abiyah, whatever, whatever. And so they look at Zechariah and they ask him, uh, they, they signed to him, which is interesting to me because apparently in the excitement, they forgot like he can hear. He's just been rendered mute. He can also hear too, but they're, you know, signing to him and they say, what, what is the boy going to be called? And Zachariah asked for like, you know, a, a tablet. So it was like, essentially asked for a pen and a paper and pick it up with me in verse, uh, 
Where are we? I started preaching. I lost where we were at here. Verse, um, verse 62. Verse 62. It says, And they made signs to his father, so the crowd signs to Zechariah. They inquire uh, what he wanted him, the boy, to be called. And he, that's Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. You know, it's interesting here because when Zachariah says his name is John, it's extremely emphatic. It's a statement of fact. It's not up for discussion. Why? Because Zachariah has changed his tune. <laughs> Zachariah is now saying, whatever God wants. I'd like to be able to speak again. He sent an angel. He sent a messenger to me. And I kind of ignored what he was up to. So not, uh, you know, we'll call him John. His name is John. And when Zechariah writes that on a tablet, it's very interesting, 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And as Zechariah speaks, uh, the reality is that he begins to sing. He begins to sing a song of praise to God. He, he begins to declare the works and wonders of God. And I want you to know that Zechariah has undergone a shift in focus. Whereas his focus was once on himself, whereas he was once a belly button gazer, where he was once about me, 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 I, 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 his focus has turned now to God. And for some of us in the room, you're like, oh man, that's great. I would love a shift in focus away from self and on to God. I know that's best for me. I know that's healthy for me. I know, I know that's, the, that's the best thing spiritually for me. But sometimes I don't quite know how to do that. Like, like how, do you, how do you turn other than like, you know, I try to think about God more. I don't know. The song Zachariah sings actually gives us two outstanding clues, practical applications of how to turn our focus, shift our focus from self to God. So, so here's the first one. It, 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 uh, practical application number one, begin to declare the works of God. Declare what God has done. If you want to shift your focus between, from self to God, declare, talk about, sing about, what God has done. Read with me uh, Zechariah's song. It'll be up here on the screen. And I want us to look together. I've highlighted them up here on the screen. All the things that Zechariah says about how great and awesome God is. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. How many of you caught an e, uh, I or a me or a my in there? And it's not there, is it? Look at all the things Zachariah says. He says, God has visited. God has redeemed. God has raised up. God has spoken that we should be saved. Passive. We experience what God has done. Salvation. God has shown the mercy promised. He will grant us. We will be delivered. God, God, God. What has he done? We declare the works of what he's done. You want to shift your focus from self to God and begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised? Declare what God has done. That's why what we do in here on Sunday mornings in terms of corporate worship is of critical importance. How did we start this morning? You are the everlasting God. You don't faint you don't grow weary. What does that have to do with you and me? Zero. It's got everything to do with the greatness of God. Men and women of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, family of faith, we have this, this myopic, internal focus Sometimes 
and we lose focus on the king, and we lose focus on God's salvation, we lose focus on his plan, we lose focus on what he's done, and I would like all of us, including me, as a family of faith and as individuals, to to keep that focus true, keep it where it's at, and you know how to do that? Declare the works of God. When we come here on a Sunday morning, it's like, you know, you're, you might be in a fight with your spouse, you're in a fight with your kids, and you had a rough day, and you haven't had enough sleep. You know what? God doesn't faint, and he doesn't grow weary. He's the everlasting God. He's to be worshipped and praised. The greatness of who he is is to be proclaimed from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, all the time. We learned together today the shift in focus from self to God by declaring the works of God. The second thing that I want you to see here, and, 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 and we're going to see it uh, sh- briefly in Zechariah's song here. But I want to preface it before, uh, before we look at the song here. Uh, again, because there's another aspect of what he's doing. Uh, as I reread Luke... Uh, over and over again in the last several weeks and months as I've been studying, Luke, in a lot of ways, is kind of obsessed with locating Jesus within the context of what God had been doing already for a long time. Like Jesus doesn't just kind of pop out of nowhere you, you, know, you, you know the scripture, some of you do, some of you don't, it's okay, but, but Jesus is compared to a plant. It's like a tender shoot that grew up from the ground. You know what plants have? Roots. And those roots go as deeply as the plant grows out of the ground. The, the, the life of Jesus, what God has done in Jesus, the grand finale that is Jesus is rooted deeply in what God had already been doing in setting up his plan for redemption, in declaring his mercy, in extending grace, in opening his arms wide and declaring to the nations, I love you and I want to reconcile and restore you unto myself. And he does that in all kinds of ways in the Old Testament. It's the first fireworks that God starts to shoot off. Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses, covenant with David, law, prophets, miracles, all to say, I am about redemption and I am putting a plan for redemption into place. Luke is obsessed with it and Zechariah is too. Now watch, let's reread that same text again, and I want you to see all the references just in these few verses, just in these few verses to what God has already been doing, the scene that Jesus shows up on. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. You want to know how to shift your focus from self to God? Locate yourself within God's grand redemptive plan. Find yourself, see yourself in the context of God's grand redemptive plan. So so many of us, you know, we think of ourselves like, okay, you know, I, I met Jesus, I said yes to him, and he redeemed me and rescued me, and now I walk with him. Absolutely, without question. If you have said yes to Jesus, he has redeemed you and rescued you, and he's providing healing, is he not, every day? He's providing encouragement and comfort, is he not, each and every day? But you know what else? You're part of a plan that God set in place for redemption since the day creation fell. God said, no, 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 no. That's not how I designed it. That's not okay. And he set a plan in place for redemption and he has begun to work that plan out through different fireworks called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I won't keep doing that. Prophets, the law, 
He set a plan into place. And, and, and you know what? You're part of that plan. It's not just about you. It's about what God is doing in the nations and what God is doing throughout all time. Luke is the only one of four evangelists, four writers of the gospel that writes a sequel to his gospel. You know what it's called? Acts. You know what it's about? The church, you and me, moving God's grand redemptive plan forward. Locate yourself in that. See yourself as part of that. See yourself as part of that tidal wave that is moving the kingdom of God forward. So we learn from Zechariah to shift focus from self to God. We learn how to do it by declaring his works and by seeing ourselves in God's grand redemptive plan. Now let's talk about Zechariah's son, John. Let's, let's read the second half of Zechariah's song, he starts to talk about this little boy. 76, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to what? Prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. I find the second half of Zachariah's song interesting. I mean, there's so much we can do. That, that, that song is so rich. There's so much we can pull from it. But here, here's a couple of things. One, uh, John has one job. You ever seen those things? You had one job. You ever seen those things before? You had one job. John has one job. What is it? Prepare the way of the Lord. Gabriel says, I'm giving you a son so that he might prepare the way of the Lord, so that he might make straight paths for him, so that he might remove distractions. I'm giving you a son so that he might prepare the way. But all those other things that he mentions in the second half, those are all God things. You're going to prepare his ways so that he might give knowledge of salvation, forgiveness, mercy, light, and guide our feet into the way of peace. That's all about God. John's one role, Zachariah's little boy that he's just brought to the temple to be named and circumcised. His one job is prepare the way of the Lord. That's what Gabriel said and Zachariah's prophesying over him. Your job is to prepare a way. Get the people ready to receive God's grand finale. And so John, this little boy, grows up. And when he's about 30, 31 years old, pick it up in chapter 3, verse 2. Second half. The word of God came to John, just in case we don't know which John this is, the son of Zechariah. John's about 30 years old at this point. In the wilderness, verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Look up here, say it with me. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Gabriel. Zachariah, and now John shows up on the scene and he does exactly what God has called him to do is just remove distractions, to make straight paths, and to prepare people to receive what God has given in the grand finale of his son, Jesus. Question for you this morning. Are you preparing yourself are you preparing others around you to receive what God is giving and has given in his son Jesus this Christmas season? To continue our analogy this morning, is your life pointing people towards God's grand finale? Is the firework that is your life, is it just kind of cool and neat and colorful? Or is it pointing people towards God's grand finale in Jesus? Is it preparing the way for him? Is it making straight paths for him? You know what's interesting about, about John is uh, just, just in a couple verses, I read verse, uh, the first part of uh, chapter 3 there, just in a few verses, you know what, they, they'll come and ask him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the, the promised one? In other words, what are they asking him? Are you the grand finale? 
You know what he says? Oh, no, no, no. You'll know when it's the grand finale. And just a verse or two later, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, that is the grand finale. That's what it means to prepare the way for the Lord. In the way you work, where your coworkers and your boss see a God who's worthy of integrity, worthy of hard work in everything you do, in your private thoughts, the way you view yourself and the way you view others, is God being glorified? Is he being magnified? Are you making much of Jesus inside? Is your life pointing towards God's grand finale? In the way you treat your spouse, in the way you parent your kids, in the way you speak to others, would people hear you and go, man, now that's pretty cool. And you know the response? Oh, that ain't cool. The grand finale is cool. What does the word of God say? That they may see your good deeds and glorify what? Your father that's in heaven. So that they may see the firework that is your life and go, I can't wait for that grand finale. And you know what your response can be and mine? Let me introduce you to him. He's the best. Two take-homes today. Resolute focus on God, off self and on God, number one. Number two, live in such a way that you're pointing towards God's grand finale. As we conclude our worship this morning, I actually asked uh, Melissa and the choir to do my favorite Christmas song. And it's not like, you know, I'm the lead pastor here, so I just get to put in requests whenever I want. Like, I asked for a purpose. The, the song goes like this. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. It's a prayer of invitation. It's a prayer of request. It's a prayer of open-heartedness before the Lord. And we say, please come. Come and redeem. Come and heal. C- come and speak to me. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. But, but before we sing that, before Melissa leads us in that, here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to spend just a moment, just a moment, just as we would in a big fireworks show waiting for the grand finale, we're going to spend a moment in quiet, knowing that the grand finale is coming. And then we're going to sing and invite, come thou long expected Jesus. And, and as we do that, as we spend that moment in quiet together, I would ask that maybe you could feel just a little of that tense expectation, of that joyful anticipation, of that waiting on God's grand finale that the nation of Israel felt for 400 years after the Old Testament was written, waiting on God to send his son. God had spoken through the prophets and God had spoken through the law, but in these last days, the scripture says, he has spoken to us through his son. So as we're quiet together, we ask people not move around and you know, not go out and go to the washroom or anything. We won't spend long, just 30 seconds or so. Don't shuffle. Just be still and quiet before the Lord and experience that expectation together. And then Melissa's going to lead us in singing this prayer. Come thou long expected Jesus. You're invited to join with us and sing.